Philippi was an outpost in the Roman Empire in the East. Patriotism and nationalism were its hallmarks. Paul writes to the church there to remind them of their call to something higher, a power greater than any nation or military. Jesus is the one true Lord, the only one worthy of anyone's devotion. But Jesus is not one to lord his power over us. Jesus is the God who gave up everything to serve out of love. And we as followers are called to follow his example. This is a series about following the ways of Jesus. And in the midst of anything that comes against us, know that joy and peace because Jesus, the king of the universe, has come so close as to live within us. Amen. Amen. Um, so that's Nelly. Make her feel welcome. Yes. Uh, so we are, um, if you were here last week, in the book of Philippians. We have started a new uh, series uh, in actually one of my favorite books in the Bible. Uh, it doesn't need to be yours, but it is mine. Uh, and we've made it to uh, halfway through chapter one. And Jason is going to come and read to us uh, from chapter 1, uh, from 12 to 21. Jason. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodness. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Uh, let me show you how this passage works. Paul is in the first half kind of looking back and then in the second half looking forward. Uh, he's looking back, verse 12 to 18, to the bad thing that has happened and is happening to him, namely his imprisonment in chains in Rome. And in the second section, 18 to 20, he's looking forward to another bad thing uh, that may or may not happen to him, his execution. So these are the happy topics for this morning. Imprisonment and execution, you're welcome. But all joking aside, um, of all the things that the Bible is and isn't, one thing it can never be accused of is being unrealistic. The Bible does not sugarcoat things. It does not tell us to view life through rose-tinted spectacles. It never ever says that life will be a bed of roses and nothing bad will ever happen to you ever again. It doesn't ignore the bad things of life. It doesn't try to sweep them under the carpet or pretend they don't exist because the Bible is a book of real life and real life includes bad things, doesn't it? 
And Philippians in particular is a book of joy and hope and life and beauty and wonder, but it's also one that is thoroughly grounded in real life. So Paul is not pretending that bad things aren't happening. He's being thoroughly, thoroughly realistic about the fact that things are bad and they could actually get much, much worse for him. But in the midst of this, in the midst of these two sections, he says, verse 18, I rejoice. Even though I'm locked up in prison, I rejoice. And then he says it again, and I'll continue to rejoice. Even though I'm not just in prison, but I'm also looking ahead to a potential execution, I will continue to rejoice. So then, yes, this is a sermon about bad things. It's about imprisonment and execution. It's a sermon about any of the bad things you have ever experienced in your life, anything you are currently experiencing in your life, anything you will experience in your life. It's a sermon based in the stark and sometimes or often painful reality of the human experience. But it's also much, much more than that. It's about how Paul and how you and I in turn can have joy in the midst of suffering. How we can go through life not being defined by or crippled by the things that haven't gone as we would like them to or the things that won't go as we would like them to. It's about how we, like Paul, can say, you know all this stuff? I'm not pretending it doesn't hurt, but I'm rejoicing. And I'm going to go on rejoicing in the midst of all of it. It's about how your worst nightmare, the thing you most dread happening in the whole world, if it were to happen, that you would be able to say, this fundamentally has not derailed me. So, now that we're getting into it, let me ask you a question. Is this your experience of life? Or has the bad stuff, is the bad stuff, will the bad stuff define you? Has it, did it, will it derail you, cripple you? because it doesn't need to. And Paul shows us how and why in this passage. So, let us start at the beginning, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, what has happened to Paul is this. Whilst being in Rome, he has been arrested and imprisoned by the Roman authorities. So Paul is probably writing this letter late 50s, early 60s, and by this time, which is actually quite late in Paul's career, Christianity has uh, kind of removed itself in terms of how Rome would see it from its Jewish um, beginnings or its Jewish sort of... Um, uh, it, it's no longer really seen as a sect within Judaism. It is its own religion and it's right in terms of how Rome view it. And the thing about Rome is they had... Um, religions that were, that were okay. 
they would allow their subjects to perform various um, religions as long as they were on the list and that they did, in performing those religions, they didn't cause any trouble. And Judaism was one of them. But Christianity has now, in the eyes of Rome, separated itself off from Judaism and it is not on the list of um, uh, appropriate religions. So in Paul just doing anything publicly in the name of Jesus or Christianity, he is going against Roman law. So that's one of the reasons he was probably imprisoned. The other reason, which we can be totally certain of, is that in preaching the Christian gospel, what Paul was regularly saying was, Jesus is Lord. And this, in a Roman context, is treason. Because there is only one Lord, Caesar is Lord, and to say that anyone else is Lord is guilty of treason, and treason is punishable by death. So, Paul is therefore thrown in prison. But it's not just in prison. Verse 13, he's in chains. And this uh, means actually that he was chained 24-7 to a praetorian guard. Now, the Praetorian Guard were like the kind of um, CIA, KGB, MI5 bodyguards of the emperor. These are Jason Bourne, Daniel Craig, hardened, grizzled men, right? And they would take shifts in being chained to Paul. He'd sleep chained to one, he'd eat chained to one, he'd poop chained to one, and he'd pee chained to a Praetorian Guard. So then, it's no surprise that his friends in Philippi are worried about him. Their whole lives have been turned around as a result of his preaching. He's presented the gospel to them, they've met Jesus, they've received the Spirit, and they've experienced the power of this glorious, wonderful good news of the gospel. Now, I know um, for some of us it's hard to remove ourselves from just sort of uh, either loving Paul's teaching or not liking Paul's teaching and sort of fixating on Paul's teaching. But first and foremost, Paul was an evangelist. He had given his whole life to spreading the good news to every corner of the universe. And he was brilliant at it. He'd go into a city, he would set himself up debating and preaching in the town square, and such was the power of his rhetoric, such was his ability to debate, such was the spirit working powerfully through him, such was his grasp of the power of the gospel to reach into every little nook and cranny of the human experience, that in every city, exactly the same thing happened whenever he preached. He'd preach, and pagans would meet Jesus. So many, in fact, that he would then have to start a church there. This is what he did. So Paul was certainly beloved by those whom, through his teaching, had met Jesus. And they are worried, therefore, what might happen to him. This person whom they love. And they are also happy, worried by what is going to happen to the spread of the gospel. With Paul in chains... What is going to happen to the evangelism of the world? Because Paul, they know, quite frankly, is the greatest evangelist that has ever been. But he's stopped from doing all of this. And therefore, I think we should expect that Paul was a bit worried about this too. He was born to preach. This is his whole career. This was his thing. But now he can't do it. He's in prison, handcuffed to a big, sweaty man. Um, Derek Redmond is uh, an um, ex-British Olympic runner 
who by most reckoning was probably the most gifted uh, runner of his generation. He was beset by injury throughout his early career, but he overcame each injury. He kept coming back. And by the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, he had gone through eight different surgeries for different problems uh, and had overcome all of them. And by 1992, he was actually at the peak of his career. He was 27 year years old, and he was finally staying fit. He posted the fastest 400-meter time in the opening heats. He won his quarterfinal. By the time it came to his semifinal, everyone was tipping him for gold. He got off to a great start. By 250 meters, he was leading the whole pack. This was going to basically be a cakewalk, ready for the final. And then suddenly, an audible snap in the stadium. His hamstring goes, he buckles, he hobbles, he falls to the ground. Famously, um, and it's worth a Google if you fancy a cry, his dad forces his way out of the bleachers in the stadium pushing away stewards, telling him he can't go onto the track. And he goes, I'm his dad. And he goes and picks Derek up and hobbles with him over the finish line, dead last. Here's a picture, if we have it. Worth a Google. Derek Redmond never competed professionally again. And two years later, age 29, when he should have been actually running his fastest, he was told by the surgeons that his running career was over for good. What must it have been like to face the reality that what everything you have worked for, everything you've poured your life into, your whole life's focus and passion is no longer available to you through no fault of your own? Thank you, Isaac. Let's get real for a second. Who of us can relate? whose career, through circumstances out of your control, is just not happening. What's that doing to you? Surely, Paul must have had those feelings and more. Because not only is his career given a big end, he's expecting execution. Surely he must have gone through all the anger of it, the injustice of it, the depression of it all. And yet, verse 18, I rejoice. What on earth enables Paul to do that? Now, on the surface, it looks like, and this is certainly true, that Paul can rejoice even though he's locked up, even though his career has been put on hold, he can nevertheless see that the gospel is bearing fruit despite these circumstances. And firstly, it's doing it inside the prison, verse 13. It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else, I am in chains for Christ. Imagine being handcuffed to the Apostle Paul for hours on end. Paul, the arch evangelist, you are quite literally a captive audience it may actually be difficult to distinguish who is the captor and who is the captive in this situation. Paul telling you about Jesus 24-7, over and over and over again. But also, Paul telling you about Jesus 24-7. 
answering every single one of your questions in the most intellectually stimulatingly compelling way, bringing the scriptures alive, convincing you deep down of something that you had hoped might be true, that there is a God, that we can know his name, and that he loves us, and that he's come close to us, and that he's done everything to bring us into fullness of life, fullness of relationship with him. And then what about the stories? First-hand experience. Miraculous escapes from prison. Healing that he has done in Jesus' name. Raising people from the dead in Jesus' name. Meeting the actual risen Jesus. Is it any wonder that the Praetorian Guard all become Christians? So Paul can rejoice that despite his imprisonment, the gospel is being preached in the prison. But also, not just in the prison, outside it as well. Verse 14. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul's absence means other people have risen up. They've taken responsibility. And this is great news for Paul. Now, some of them are doing it for the right reasons. Some are doing it for the wrong reasons. Paul does not give a monkeys. It does not matter. All that matters is that Christ is being preached. I want to try and uh, relate to this a little bit. It's kind of tricky. It's important to know what exactly is going on here. What it isn't is people walking into the churches that Paul has founded, then telling the converts there that Paul's wrong, that they need to distance themselves from Paul, and they need to do various other things. That's not what's going on here. Whenever that does happen, and it actually happens quite a lot, Paul has quite a different reaction, and we can read about it in nearly all of his letters. Paul says, uh, no, and kick him out, having none of it. But that's not what's going on here. And so um, I was just trying to relate it to us. Obviously, I want to relate myself to uh, very important biblical figures. If I was Paul and this was happening here, and people were saying, oh, by the way, the gospel, it's not about Jesus, it's about something else, uh, I would go, yes, no, it's not, uh, and goodbye. But that's not what's going on here. Rather, what is going on here is in the context of evangelism. These are people presenting the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus, to pagans and those pagans becoming Christians. But then what they're saying probably, and we're slightly speculating here, is, right, you've become Christians, don't touch Paul. We don't like Paul. We don't like his churches. We don't like what he preaches. We don't like him. Get away from him. And to these people, Paul, in his extraordinary generosity, says, great, love it, wonderful, Jesus. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? There are lots of good churches. Let's just bless them. Just bless them. There are lots of different ways of presenting the gospel. Let's just bless them, because God is... And if he is, who are we? Good. How does Paul do that? Well, I want to say what he's not doing is seeing the best in a bad situation. It's tempting to think that's what's going on here, but it really isn't. Because for Paul, it's nowhere near enough to go, 
oh great, the guards have become Christians and those who are outside the prison have stepped up and they're starting preaching, wonderful, that'll do, I'll be fine. That's not it. That is definitely not enough for Paul. This is Paul. His whole career has been put on hold. He's not looking for silver linings. He's not looking for something to make him feel, okay, it's not that bad, it's all right. He's looking straight into the void of the big black cloud that is hovering over him. And let's us just be honest for a second. If your career is not going as you'd like it, are you really going to be satisfied by saying, but other people's career is going great, so that's wonderful, that's enough for me? Or I'm getting little bits and bobs here and there, so it's okay. None of that is actually enough, is it? Paul is not just looking on the bright side. What he is doing, and I want to try and illustrate, and I want to try and illustrate this by doing a sort of alternative universe, a hypothetical version in which what we see is Paul's attitude, even if actually everything had been a disaster, even if there was no silver lining whatsoever. So don't worry, this isn't the Bible. This is coming from my head. It's completely made up. But this is my sort of metaverse version of Philippians 1. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has been an absolute disaster. They're not allowing me to speak. No one even knows why I'm here in prison, and no one cares. I can't even tell the guards about Jesus. I'm not allowed to do or say anything. My career is crashing and burning, and with it, the power of the gospel to reach all of these people. Worse than this, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have lost all confidence in the Lord. And they don't even dare proclaim the gospel to anyone. This, brothers and sisters in Philippi, is a complete and utter, unmitigated disaster. And yet, I rejoice. And I will rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. For, verse 19, if we can have that up, Isaac. I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. The point I'm trying to make is that even if there had been no silver lining, nothing obviously good had come out of any of Paul's imprisonment or potential future execution, he would still be rejoicing. And the key to understanding why this must be the case is verse 19. I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. The word deliverance can be a bit misleading. It sounds like Paul's saying, I know that God will um, free me from this prison and I won't be executed. I'll be delivered. That's not really what's being said at all. This word, everywhere else it is used, is used as salvation. And almost certainly it should be translated as salvation here. What Paul is saying is this. All of what is going on is furthering, deepening, growing my salvation. And that is the grounds for enormous rejoicing. You see, salvation in a Christian understanding is past, present, future. All three, all at the same time. We have been saved, we are being saved, 
we will be saved. Jesus' death and resurrection has saved us past from the price of sin and all its eternal consequences. Jesus' ongoing work in the life of the believer through his spirit is saving us present from the power of sin day by day. We are if, if, if we let God do his thing in us, becoming freer and freer and freer from all the things that hold us back and cause us and others pain. And we will be saved, future, from the presence of sin entirely. When Jesus returns, when his kingdom is fully established, no sin, no death, no sickness, no pain, all of it forever. Past, present, future, we are we have been, we will be saved. And what Paul is concentrating on here is the present element, the present work of Jesus, saving him from the power of sin. What Paul is saying is that all this trouble, all these bad, bad things, the loss of his career, his imprisonment, the threat of execution, all of it, he can see that they are actually all being used by God to deepen his present experience of freedom from all the things that hold him back. God hasn't sent the suffering, God hates suffering. You need to know that. If God likes suffering, why did Jesus spend most of his time taking it away? God does not like suffering, however, he uses all of it. And he's using it here, and Paul knows it, and he's able to see that, and he's therefore able to participate in it. And Paul is able to say that whatever happens, good, bad, or extremely ugly, it is all going to turn out for me being more saved than I was just before. So I am rejoicing. Uh, one of the good things about getting older, which strangely I am, is that you can look back on earlier versions of yourself and see how you've changed. It's a nice little thing to do now and again. And I know that my default as a younger person was whenever something bad happened or didn't go the way I wanted it to, I would revert to a 12-year-old and throw a big hissy fit. All the toys out of the pram, I give up. How dare this happen to me? No one deserves me. I don't deserve this. And then blame, 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 blame. Who can I blame? Anyone, anyone, anything, absolutely. The person at the checkout in Trader Joe's, they're getting it. Now, you'll be pleased to know I'm a little bit more mature. I'm not on Paul's level. But that's the goal. We're not minimizing the pain. We're not denying the reality of the pain. We're not just looking for silver linings, although that can be helpful as Paul shows us here. We're saying that there's something bigger. And what is bigger is a deep, deep conviction about Jesus. That God has worked out his purposes for the world through Christ's death and resurrection. And, both and, God is continuing to work them out by his spirit through his church. It's a deep conviction that God has saved you. He is saving you and he will save you. Do you believe it? It will set you free. So how do we get it? 
Fortunately, Paul tells us. Firstly, through orientating our whole life around one thing and one thing only. Verse 21. Yes, thank you, Isaac. We got it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, by which he means to live is Christ and to die is Christ. It does not matter which, all gravy, all Jesus, that's what it's about. If to live is your career, if your career doesn't go as you would like it to, how easy is it going to be to live? If you live for relationships, if to live is this relationship or that relationship, this future one, or this current one, or that past one, what happens if it actually never materializes, or it goes wrong? If you live for your family, or for your work, or for success, or whatever it is, what happens when these things don't go the way we want them to go? Chapter three, verse 12, Paul says this, Jesus has apprehended me. Jesus has taken possession of me. Jesus has laid claim to me. Jesus has taken me prisoner. That's what the word really means. And it's wonderful. Has Jesus apprehended you? Does he have possession over you? This is my job to tell you. It's the only way to happiness. I so believe it, otherwise I wouldn't be here. And so it may be that a kind of sort of um, conversion needs to take place in you if we're not going to actually just be buffeted all over the place by the winds of change and by circumstances. What we're going to have to do potentially is change. You'll know if this is you. You're going to have to change your mind. You're going to have to convert your thinking. And or you're going to have to convert your heart. You're going to have to convert your soul about what you feel and where it is headed. Now, let me say this really clearly. Of course, career, relationships, family, work, success, these are wonderful things. Do you know that God cares more about each one of those than you? He cares more about it than you do. Of course he does. He is the God of love. He can't help himself care a trillion, billion, quillion, zillion times more about all of those things than you do. He really cares. You think you care? Try him for size. And he wants to shower you with good things. But more than all of those things, he cares about you. 
And that's why you're going to want to orientate your whole life around him and nothing else. So how do we do it? Well, for some of us, it might need a spot of conversion, a little bit of conversion in the mind and the heart and the soul. For all of us, wherever we are, it's going to need two other things. Verse 19, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. In order to experience more of the salvation of Jesus, we're going to need to see him for who he is again. And that comes from two places, prayer and the supply of his spirit. Because he can get hidden, can't he? We do the things of life and Jesus, we can't quite see him as we might once have been able to or we would like to. And so what we need is him again. But the Spirit has been provided. He has been supplied. The very person of God, God himself, has been given to us to bring us again full into the face of Jesus Christ, the only one around whom it's worth orientating our lives. And he says, allow me to work out all this salvation right here, right now in you. Allow me to reorientate you to me. Don't you want it? Don't you want to not be derailed or crippled by bad things? Don't you? I know I do. And yet we find it so difficult, don't we, to actually go, oh, all right, Jesus. But this is the way. It's always been the way. It's the only way. Sorry, it's the way. Good, good. Should we stand? Would you like to open your hands just as a sign of being open? Imagine you're going to receive a gift. You don't have to do this. But Jesus is here with the gift of life, the gift of his Holy Spirit, and he's saying, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open to you. So would you like to ask for the gift of life, the gift of his Spirit? Anyone who's a Christian has the Spirit. He's not leaving, he'll never leave but we leak his presence. We don't see Jesus as clearly. We don't have him coursing through, bringing his salvation to us, so we need more of him. So why don't you just ask in your own... very distracting. Try not to be distracted because the Spirit of God is here and he's doing some work, deep, deep work in people's lives.
Come, Spirit of the living God. Spirit of the living God, would you show yourself in all your goodness and wonder to your people whom you love? I bless what you're doing. I bless what you're doing and I pray that you would fill your people now, increase your presence from the front of this room to the back. We welcome you, Spirit of the living God. So I feel like God has shown me that there are people here who from an early age were told that they were, um, that God was calling them to ministry, to being a pastor. And for lots of reasons that has got derailed, some good, some bad. You know if this is you. God is just saying to you, I'm still with you. I am still with you. Should we do this together? Would you like to get back on the horse and start riding again? I'll heal the pain. But what I want to do is set you on fire because you have felt half alive, not fully alive. I want to set you on fire because this is what I've called you to do. It will probably come with a lot of tears. It's fine. For others, it's just a stark acknowledgement that they're living for something other than Jesus. We all do from time to time. We're all mixed in our motives. But would you like to just receive him again? so that you don't need to be anxious about all of these things and you can rejoice in the hardest of circumstances. Jesus loves you so much. He's not willing to let you stay far from him any longer. He's just calling you. So for that or any other reason, we'll always pray for anyone. Would you like to come to the front and would the ministry team come? 